Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to two passages of Scripture. The first one is found in Genesis chapter number 3. Genesis chapter number 3. And I want you to hold your place there and find uh, Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. Matthew chapter 1 verse 21. And Genesis chapter number 3 in verse number 15. Last week, we talked about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This week, I want to talk about redemption. I want to talk about Christmas and redemption and how Christmas was portrayed in the Old Testament in regards to the true meaning of Christmas. We've commercialized Christmas to the point uh, so much that we uh, think it's about things. It reminds me of a story I heard, David, of these three uh, guys, these three men who loved their mother so very, very much. She was a widow, and she was 75 years of age. The three sons of hers were very, very wealthy, and they decided it was time to do something very special for their mother. So they got together and had a little meeting, and they said, what what are we going to do for mom on this Christmas? She's 75 years old. We need to do something really, really special. I mean, go out with a bang. And the older brother said, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to buy mama a new house. And so he did. He bought his mother, a 75-year-old mother, a brand-new 5,000-square-foot home. He was so excited about that and gave it to his mother. The second son said, I love Mama so much, I'm going to buy her a brand-new Mercedes-Benz. So he went out and purchased that car for her and took it to her and gave it to her. And then the younger brother said, I'm going to do something better than all that. You know, ever since Daddy died, Mama loves to read the Bible. She finds her solace in that. She finds her great hope. She loves the Lord so very, very much. She says, he said, you're not going to believe this, but I found a man overseas that will train and has trained a parrot to memorize the entire Word of God. And I'm going to buy that parrot for my mom. And it's an amazing parrot because you can ask that parrot, where is this in the Bible? And that parrot will quote it chapter and verse. So sure enough, he bought that, had it sent to his mother, and it arrived on Christmas Eve. The next day, she wrote her sons the three letters of thank you for those wonderful gifts that she received. To the first son, she wrote, Dear son, thank you so very much for my Christmas gift. The home is beautiful. There's only one problem. I'm 75 years old. This thing is too big. I only live in one room of this house. And I have to clean it every single day. I know it's the thought that counts. But it's just too big. To the second son, she wrote a letter and said, Son, thank you so very much for the Mercedes. It's such a beautiful car. Uh, Your mother loves looking at it. I enjoy it so very, very much. There's only one problem. I turned in my license three years ago. I don't drive anymore. I know it's the thought that counts, but I just don't know about this car. And to the third son, she wrote, My dearest, dearest, beloved youngest son, you truly know the desire of your mother's heart. 
Thank you so very, very much for the gift that you gave me. It was so good that you would give me that chicken for Christmas. It was delicious. A lot of times we think about Christmas and we think about gifts, and it is about gifts, but it's about the greatest gift that's ever been given, and that's the gift of Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15, the Scripture tells us the very first recorded prophecy of Jesus coming to this earth. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now it's very important that the context of this verse be clearly understood. Remember what's happened here. God has created Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden. And God in his great love for Adam and Eve gave them a choice. He gave them a choice to obey. That's what true love really is giving someone a choice. You see, we fail to think and remember that love truly is a choice. We think love's a feeling, and we like to fall in and out of feelings. That's why you hear people say they fell in love or they fell out of love. Uh, I'm here to say to you today, dear brother and sister, the true meaning of love is, goes far beyond just feelings. Feelings will deceive you. Love must be a choice. You must choose to love your spouse just as you choose to love Jesus every day. I'll never forget, I was on a mission trip to the French West Indies, and I was uh, there, and my very first mission trip overseas, it was a little island called Dominica, and we were uh, training pastors, and we were also sharing the gospel door to door. It was a wonderful, wonderful first trip that I'd ever been on overseas. And we went to breakfast one morning uh, at the missionary's house. And as we went to the missionary's home there, uh, they were just getting up. We arrived very early. And the wife was there in the kitchen. And they had this beautiful balcony overlooking the, the water. It was just a gorgeous, gorgeous view. And I can remember standing on that balcony by myself looking out. And the missionary, the husband, came out and he put his arm around my shoulder. He said, this is a beautiful view, isn't it? And I said, yes, sir, it sure is a beautiful view. He said, I got a question for you, Shane. He said, is there someone that you love uh, back in the States? I said, yes, sir, there, there is. There's someone in Gadsden, Alabama that I love very, very dearly. I want to marry her one day. And he said, can I show you something very quickly? And I said, well, sure. He said, will you turn around and look into my home? I said, yes. And I turned around with him, and as we turned around and we were looking inside the home, his wife was standing at the stove, and she had a moo-moo from her chin all the way down to the floor. Her hair was just everywhere. He called her name and said, Kathy, and she turned around without any makeup on or anything and, uh, and said, I love you, honey. And she said, I love you too. And all the while, he had his arm around me. Now, he looked at me, and he said, son, did you see that? I said, yes, sir. He said, I got to look at that every day. <laughs> One thing I want to tell you about love, love is a choice. Now, he was being facetious at the time, and we got a good giggle out of it, but he told a tr very true statement. Love is a choice. And you choose who you're going to love. You choose to love your spouse every day. You choose to love your children. You say, well, ah, children's love is an unconditional love. Oh, come on. 
There have been many occasions where you thought, you know why some animals eat their young. <laughs> God's love is truly unconditional. He loves us warts and all. In fact, God loved us so much, back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, when they chose to go their own way, God, through His love for them, His unconditional love for them, made a way so that they could still have a relationship with God. And it says there in Genesis chapter number 3, in verse number 15, as he is speaking, if you will, to Satan, he's speaking to the enemy, he's speaking to the devil, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, if you have your pens, pencils, lipstick, or mascara, I would underline the word enmity. That word is a very fascinating word. The word enmity means a blood war. There's going to be a blood feud, if you will, between the woman and also the devil. But it doesn't just go there. Notice what the scripture says. He says, and, he uses the conjunction and, between your seed and her seed. And so when you think about the seed of the devil, what is the seed of the devil? Remember, Jesus, in speaking to the false religions while he walked on this earth, he told the Pharisees who were following after the law of Moses, you are of your father, the devil. And the works and deeds that he does, those are the things you want to do. He was telling them that religion, listen to me very carefully, don't miss this, religion, can be the seed of the devil, and religion will send you to hell. So what is the true religion the Bible talks about? True religion that the Bible speaks of, and the Bible does use that term, true religion. True religion is a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so yesterday, what a wonderful experience that we had. As yesterday, we were uh, able to serve 39 families there at the Toys for Joy. Uh, we were able to see 140 kids come through and provide Christmas for 140 kids. That's on top of what you already ha have done for our foster kids. And, and I just want to say thank you, church, for that. Praise God for that. But the most important number is the 16 souls that prayed to receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. That's what it's all about. It is about a relationship. Amen. Praise God. It's about a relationship. It's not about religion. I sat and told those folks yesterday, just as pure as my heart could and as convicted as I could, it's not about being a Southern Baptist. It's not about being a Methodist. It's not about being a Presbyterian or a Catholic. It's about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And when I was going through the the forms yesterday, just looking, it was fascinating because on the top there was written, they were Catholics, they were Catholics, they were Catholics, and they'd come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. It's about a relationship, not religion. And so God in His sovereignty says, listen, because of sin, it separated us from God. But God says, I'm going to put a blood feud between you, the woman, and you, the devil, and between the seed of woman and the seed of religion. Now, when you read this passage of Scripture, it goes on to say, and he shall bruise your head. That word bruise is a very, very important word. I would underline that because he, the term he is capitalized, that speaking of the seed of woman, which we know now on this side, we know that that's Jesus Christ. 
That's why it's capitalized. He being the Messiah. The Messiah will bruise your head. That word bruise is a Hebrew word that means fatal blow. It means to crush. To crush. What do you do when you see a snake? David, I know you run. <laughs> you run. I know you get out the way. Uh, but if you want to kill a snake, you cut its head off. You cut its head. As a matter of fact, many uh, folks have taken shovels or whatever and got the head of that snake trying to, to contain it so that you could cut it off and get rid of it. Here we find, metaphorically speaking here, he says here, uh, talking to the servant, serpent about bruising the head. This metaphor carries the idea of a fatal blow, a fatal wound to the devil where he has no power at all anymore. And he says this to Jesus. He says, and you, or the devil, you shall bruise his heel, that word bruise there talking back to Jesus is saying there's going to be a minor, minor wound compared to what's going to happen to you, devil. You think about this. You think about the wounds of Jesus. The only thing he took back to heaven with him are the scars. Hey. Notice what the Bible says over in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Matthew chapter 1. Verse number 21. This is my favorite Christmas verse. Matthew 121, the scripture says this. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you this morning that Christmas is about salvation. Salvation Sin, through a synonym speaking, is redemption. Christmas is about redemption. And when you think about how Jesus came into the world to redeem lost mankind, you cannot help but think about uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And when you look at Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15, and you see that there's this blood feud, there's this blood feud between the seed of woman and the seed of man, or the seed of the devil, and we see here that God promised that eventually the serpent would be bruised by the heel of the seed of woman beyond recognition, but we also know there will be a bruise to take place on the Son of Man. When we think about this in the terms of redemption, what does it mean? Could I give you three things about Genesis 3.15 that, that I hope and pray will encourage you this Christmas season. Number one, the first thing I want to point out is that redemption will come through the descendants of Adam and Eve. Redemption will come through the descendants of Adam and Eve. Now notice what the Bible says here in the text once again. The Bible says, I will put this blood feud between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you today that this seed that we're talking about here is someone that will come from the womb. Eve may have quite possibly thought that her firstborn son, Cain, was this Messiah. Think about it for a minute. God had just said that I'm going to provide someone that's going to come and will redeem mankind, and he will crush the head of Satan. And he's coming from your seed, Eve. He will come from you. 
And Adam and Eve, the Bible says, according to chapter number 4, verse number 1, notice what the Bible says in the book of Genesis. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Eve really could have possibly thought this is the Messiah. This is the one. This is the one that God has provided. Yet notice what happens there in verse number 2. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and the fat of that animal. And the Lord respected Abel's offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, you will not, if, excuse me, if you uh, do well, you will not be accepted. But if you do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of your blood, brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Brothers and sisters, remember, God said there's going to be a blood feud between religion and the seed of woman. Here we see the beginning of that blood feud. This blood feud took the life of Abel. Abel's gift to God was accepted. Why? Because it was given God's way. We know that uh, it must be that Eve quickly understood that as Cain killed Abel, we see the results of sin began to blossom. And we knew very quickly there, uh, that Eve must have said, no, this is not the Messiah. This is not it. But this is the blood war that we find coming to pass that God talked about. Cain was not the Messiah. But the descendants would come through Adam and Eve. And as the generations grew, God's covenant began to pass down from patriarch to patriarch to patriarch and you think about the patriotic system and just look at the first 20 patriarchs. The chronology chart from Adam to Abraham and the lifespan of these biblical patriarchs are absolutely amazing. And when you look at it, you cannot help but notice that through the years from Adam all the way down to Abraham, totals in 2,183 years. Do you have that slide? Let's put it up there if you have it. Uh, I'd appreciate it putting up there. Look at this. 2,100 and 83 years later, the Messiah still has not come. But there's been a promise that has been made all the while. And that promise comes through the term, the seed. There's a seed coming, there's a seed coming. And we know that when God was talking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 in verse 7, and again in Genesis chapter 13, and again in Genesis chapter 15, and in verse eight, and chapter 18, and again in chapter 19, again in chapter 22, time and time and time and time and time again, God said, there's a seed coming, there's a seed coming, there's a seed coming. 
Redemption is coming through Adam and Eve. Some 2,803, excuse me, 2,183 years, God is doing something in the history of Israel that has its genesis in the promise in the Garden of Eden. What does this genealogy look like? Could I show you this? Let's look at the genealogy of Jesus very quickly if we could. We see that God is the Father of Jesus Christ. God is the Father. Mary is the mother. And the genealogy of Mary is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 17. While the genealogy of the stepfather, which is, uh, if you would, Joseph, is found over in Luke, chapter number 3. And when you look at these two and you begin to see them, you begin to see that God, through the genealogies, did exactly what he said he was going to do. God created Adam. Adam had Seth. Seth had Enosh. And down through the generations, we come all the way to David. When we finally get to David and David looks at his genealogy all the way to Abraham, he finds that there are 14 generations. And then from David all the way down, uh, if you would, as David had Solomon and Nathan, you find these genealogies that come down. And there's some 28 generations, if you would, until we finally get to a little virgin girl and a man by the name of Joseph who could is come to by a dream and God said your uh, expected wife is pregnant and it's not your child she is pregnant of the Holy Ghost God is keeping his promise and by the way God always keeps his promise when Mary discovers that she's expecting a baby Gabriel announces to her uh, concerning her future son. She, he uses this term in Luke chapter 1 verse 32. Uh, Gabriel says, he will be great. Uh, those are terms that Mary has heard through the generations from her grandfather her father and her grandfather and her great-grandfather and her great-great-grandfather. Time and time and time and time again, we find it clearly picking up on the phrase that God had already made to Abraham. God already made to David. He said, you guys are going to have a name that's been made great. And it's not great because you're Abraham. It's not great because you're David. It's great because the Messiah is coming through you. It's very important that we clearly understand Luke chapter 1 verse 32 is talking about Jesus and not Mary. Because the Latin Vulgate, when they translated the Latin Vulgate, they translated he to she. And it's a shame because they put the emphasis, if you would, in the Latin Vulgate, they put the emphasis on Mary. That's why we have a challenge concerning uh, this issue of Catholicism. It was never intended for Mary to be the intercessor. It was always the intention that Jesus Christ was the intercessor. So, well, where is that in Scripture? Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Listen to what the Bible says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. This scripture clearly points out the manner by which Jesus will be born, but it also gives us the name, if you would, of Jesus Christ. Emmanuel. He is God with us. And it also points to the fact that his, his, his birth is going to be amazing. His birth is going to be a miracle. 
that he will be given birth, if you would. Jesus will come through a virgin, someone that has not known a man. You say, dog, that's impossible. No, that's a miracle, and it came through Jesus Christ. And what's amazing about this prophecy in Isaiah, it was written over 700 years before Jesus Christ showed up on the scene. And it was passed down verbally from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation. And finally, here is Mary, and she hears the words of Isaiah and says, This is the child. I have known not a man, yet I'm expecting a baby. The prophecy of Micah gives insight to the fact that Jesus really is who he says he is. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, the Bible says this, But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrata, through you are so small among the clans of Judah. Out of you will come from me one who be ruler over Israel, whose signs are from old, from ancient Times We know Jesus was born in Bethlehem and this scripture told, excuse me, is telling us in advance that Jesus Christ will be born in Bethlehem. This passage of scripture was written some 800 years before Jesus Christ was born. Hosea chapter 11 verse number 1. Hosea 11 1 says this. When Israel was a child, I loved her. And out of Egypt I called my son. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you what we're dealing with during this Christmas season is not about St. Nicholas. What we're dealing with is about the Savior. And the Savior was promised all the way in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And all through the scriptures, time and time and time and time and time again, the predictions of the physical birth of Jesus Christ reign true. And the promise that God had given us through Jesus is that redemption will come through the descendants of Adam and Eve. Number two, the second thing I want to point out in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. The second thing I want to point out is that redemption comes through a covenant of grace. Redemption comes through a covenant of grace. Again, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Redemption comes through the covenant of grace. Say, where do you see that, Pastor? From the earliest times in Genesis 3.15, this passage has been called the Proto-Evangelium. This is a fascinating word because it's where we get our English word prototype. Prototype. What is a prototype? A prototype is uh, something that is one of a kind. It's one and in essence its own. I was watching 60 Minutes uh, last week, and as I was watching 60 Minutes, uh, they were doing an article on this brand new jet that they're wanting to put together. And they got one. They have a prototype, they said. And this prototype is waiting on the, on the engine to come from Rolls-Royce. And this prototype will be the only one ever in existence. There'll never be another one like it. Now, the goal is to mass produce it, but that will always be the prototype of this jet. And it is supposed to get you anywhere in the world in four hours. What a fascinating thought that is. 
And to think that here is a prototype. Here is a prototype, one-of-a-kind airplane to get you anywhere in the world in four hours. What an amazing concept that quite possibly could be. But there's only one. It's one-of-a-kind. Here we find in the text it being called the Proto-Evangelium. Proto, one-of-a-kind. Evangelium. That is the term evangelist, the term where we get our English word evangelism. It carries the idea of redemption. Seeing someone gets the message of redemption. So here is the one of a kind evangelistic person that comes to us the only way of salvation, the way, the truth, and the life. And we see the first mention of God's redemptive intention following the fall of man in the garden. And it is a proto-evangelium. It is that we might receive Christ as Savior and Lord. So what does that have to do uh, with redemption? in regards to the, uh, the covenant of grace. Hang in there with me. When Adam and Eve failed to obey the terms of, the, of God's uh, uh, direction, God set up in the Garden of Eden the covenant of works. You think about it for a minute. People, even today, David, we want so desperately to do something that God would be pleased with. God did away with that covenant when he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. See, that covenant doesn't exist anymore. It existed in the Garden of Eden. That covenant was very plain. That covenant was very true. T- turn, if you would, to, uh, to, to, to Genesis chapter number 2. In Genesis chapter 2, uh, the Bible says in verse number 15, notice here, this is the covenant of works. You want to do something to please God, you've got to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2, 15, the Bible says, Then the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There it is. The covenant of works. God said you can do all of these things, but don't do that. Now remember, God gave Adam and Eve a choice to follow the covenant of works. And the Bible is clear. Look at what the Scripture says in verse 18. And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper and compatible with him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whether Adam called each living creature, that was its name. And when you work through the rest of chapter number 2, here you find Adam, if you will, he's naming the animals, but he finally realizes he doesn't have a partner. God gives him woman being out of the sight of man and we find there comes Eve it was Adam's responsibility to communicate the covenant of works to Eve he is the spiritual leader now I know, listen to me I understand that sets the feminist in 2021 off today but I'm telling you folks Oh, please hear my heart, not in trying to be dogmatic, not trying to be rude, not trying to be ugly. God set this thing up where, Daddy, you're the leader of the family. But the Bible's clear. They failed. 
And when Adam and Eve failed to obey God's term of the covenant of works, God did not destroy them. He could have. He would have been justified in that. It would have served justice. He could have just destroyed them. He didn't. However, instead of destroying them, He revealed a new covenant to them, a covenant of grace. This covenant of grace is what Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is all about. Notice it again. The covenant of grace says, notice verse number 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here comes the grace in, in that passage that Jesus will crush the head of Satan and there will be only a bruise, a minor bruise on the seed. Verse 16, here we go. There's still a curse. To the woman he said, I will multiply your sorrow and your conception. I wonder how brief conception was before the fall. You ever thought about that? Scripture says he's going to increase it. He increased it by nine months, however that is. Who knows what it was before that? But we see here in the Scripture he said he's going to increase that. And he's also going to increase the sorrow that comes along with it. And the Bible says, In pain you shall bring forth children. And then look at the next part of the curse. Ladies, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, I want you to listen to this very carefully. According to this passage of Scripture, the word desire does not mean that you hunger and lust after your husband. It says there in the context that you desire to be over him. I've met so many husbands over the course of my ministry. So many men that say, well, the, my wife's a spiritual leader of our home. You know that, why that is? It's a part of the curse. And the Bible says that he shall rule over you. Now, this is where feminists really get upset. Could I get a witness right here? But if you take it contextually true and align it with the New Testament over in Galatians, you find that it is our responsibility as husbands to first and foremost love the Lord God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, all of our strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves and our very first neighbor as our spouse. In fact, the Bible says we're one. In fact, the scripture from Genesis again all the way through Revelation again says one, one, one. You and your spouse are one. You and your spouse are one. But if we're going to lead, anything with two heads is a monster and anything with no head is dead. That's right. So there's got to be a head. God said that head is supposed to be the husband. He's supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home. And in being the spiritual leader of the home, it is his desire, number one, to love God, number two, to love his wife. We've got that jacked up today. That is all messed up today. Verse 17. And then he said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife, you listened to her and not him. That was... Who is this in comparison to? Remember, he's comparing Eve in regards to what God had said. Who is it better to listen to, God or your wife? God. 
And he tells Adam, he says, you listen to your wife, not me. I said do not eat, but you did it willingly anyways. And because you have done that, you ate from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat. So here's the curse upon the man. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toll you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken... From dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Hardship. So, man, that don't sound a whole lot like grace. Oh, don't miss it. He could have crushed us. He could have destroyed us. Yet the Bible says that it came through the redemption of grace. He says the heel of the Savior will be bruised. We know that bruising clearly is a metaphor that in the context that it's written in is simply talking about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. As awful as it was, as, as terrible as it was, as bloody as it was, as, as gruesome as it was, there had to be the shedding of blood. Why? Because blood is the life when it comes to redemption. There must be blood shed. There must be a substitutionary bloody sacrifice. And that seems to be what is lying behind here in regards to the animal skins, in regards to what happened to Cain, in regards to through the history of the Word of God. Death after death after death, blood after blood after blood, sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Blood needs to be shed for sin in order to forgive it. This is something that accounts for why it is Abel's offering that God loved so much that God accepted it. Why? Because Abel did it God's way. And God's way requires blood. This is why these different religions out there today cannot get you to heaven. This is why Mormonism can't get you to heaven or Jehovah Witnesses can't get you to heaven. Only the bloody sacrifice of Jesus Christ can get us to heaven. Blood needs to be shed. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Leviticus chapter number 17 verse 11 says this. The scripture says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for souls. Therefore, when Jesus died on Calvary's cross and the, and the veil was ripped from the top to the bottom, it gave us full access into the Holy of Holies where the blood that was sprinkled on the mercy seat is now the blood of Jesus which cleanses whoever comes to Jesus can get forgiveness of sin. It doesn't matter how awful you think you are. Jesus saves. Redemption comes through the covenant of grace. The devil doesn't like that, does he? Number three. Let me close with this one. Redemption is challenged by Satan. Redemption is challenged by Satan. The Bible tells us there again in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that there will be a bruise on Jesus. And that bruise will come through the challenge of the devil. 
But the scripture says that Jesus, the Messiah, will crush his head. What does that look like in scripture? Three ways the devil is crushed. Number one, he's crushed at the cross. The devil is crushed at the cross. The first stage of the devil's defeat was at Calvary. Uh, It was there that Satan was initially defeated. Jesus said in John chapter 12 verse 31, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now is the prince of this world will be driven out. Listen to me brothers and sisters. If you are a born again child of God and you have been sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb, you have victory over sin. You do not have to let sin overtake you. You do not have to let sin overwhelm you. Now does that mean you're, you're perfect? No, you're not perfect. Does that mean you're going to mess up? Yes, it means you're going to mess up. But the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. Only His redeeming blood is what redeems us. Not anything I can do. The devil was judged at the cross. Number two, the devil's judged at his second coming. He's crushed at the second coming. The Bible is clear in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 through 4. If you have your Bibles, let's, let's just turn there very quickly uh, while my time is running out. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse number 7. The Bible says, Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sands of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, And they will be tormented day and night forever and forever. Dear brother and sister, simply put in 7 through 10 of of Revelation chapter 20, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back, the devil will be done away with for good. And then the third crushing. The third crushing is in fact this lake of fire experience that he has. The lake of fire experience that he has will crush him forever. Romans chapter 16 verse 20 says, And the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. Christ's death for human sin was in effect a wound rendered by Satan. But the Lord's resurrection, exaltation, and final victory will destroy the devil's revolt in his effort forever Endeavor, endeavor, endeavor. All because of a promise that was made all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God told the devil, there's going to be a blood war between your seed and the seed of woman. And this blood war While I'm not telling you everything that's going to happen, it will be revealed through the history of the Old Testament. There will be prophets. There will be preachers in the New Testament. They will communicate the truths of God's message to you. But I'm telling you, He's coming. 
and you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And here in Matthew chapter 20, verse 21, after silence for so many years in the Old Testament, the Bible says that Mary brought forth a child, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the end. That child was 100% God and 100% man. The Bible says Mary hid these things in her heart. And as the child come out of that barn that day, he began to grow. And with laser-like focus, he made his way to the cross. For one reason and one reason only, because he loved us. And Jesus, the Son of God, he went to Golgotha to die on Calvary's cross, stretched forth his hands, and they nailed him to the cross. And there that day on Golgotha, he died. And the message that Jesus was communicating to each one of us was, I love you. I love you. I love you. Jesus did not even need a tomb. He had to borrow one. Because he knew he wasn't going to keep it very long. Joseph of Arimathea took him and put him in a grave. And as he was in that tomb, one day passed. And then two days passed. You ever thought about what was going on in hell while Jesus was in the tomb? You ever thought about that? I bet the devil was throwing a party. But I bet he was nervous. Because the devil remembers what was said in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15. So I could see him every day picking up the phone and calling the grave. Hey grave. Yeah, this is, this, this is big D. Is he still dead? And the grave says, you don't have to worry about anything. He's dead as a hammer. We got him. Hangs up the phone. The next day, the devil picks up the phone and he makes a phone call to the grave. He says, grave, it's day two. Tell me, is he still dead? The grave said, sir, he died. You won. There are scars in his hands, in his feet. He is laying here in this tomb. He is wrapped up like a mummy. Sir, he is dead. He hangs up the phone. And on the third day, he picks up the phone and he calls the grave. He says, grave, it's me again. It's day three. I'm concerned. And the devil says, or the grave says, listen, devil. I'm sitting here watching this right now. And I'm telling you, just as sure as I'm talking to you, he is a... He, 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 he's a... And the devil says, what, what is it? He's what? Tell me. He's dead. And the grave said, no, this can't be. No, this can't be. 
What's going on here? And all of a sudden the stone begins to shake and the ground begins to move and dead men that are surrounding the tomb fall and a God comes down with an angel and up from the grave Jesus arises and the, the grave says, i got to let you go. Something big's happened. He's alive and slams down the phone. The stone rolls away. Jesus steps out and says, I'm back. And I love you. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that redemption came to us through Adam and Eve by God. That it came through a covenant of grace that you can't earn. Jesus paid for it all. And the devil tried his best to destroy it. But he can never do it. All you have to do, dear friend, listen to me very carefully, is trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. He's done all the work already. The Bible says if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You see, Christmas is not about St. Nick. Christmas is about the Savior. I wonder this morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today and maybe you have never trusted in the Savior. Maybe you've never heard the Christmas story in that light. And today you have realized that in your own self, for whatever reason, you have rejected the true meaning of Christmas. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there's been a blood war going on ever since man got kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And today, today, God wants to end that blood war with you. He wants you to trust Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and Lord. You see, the Bible says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The thing about the gospel of grace and the covenant of grace is it's still love. God loves you. And remember what the definition of love is? You have a choice. You can choose to accept Jesus Christ, or you can choose to reject Him. What will you do today, sir? What will you do today, ma'am? Will you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? If that's something you'd like to do, would you just right where you're sitting, would you say something like this to the Lord? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Savior. And this morning, I repent of my sin. And I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for forgiving me. I'll live for you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia, 
888-382-30558. God bless you, and I hope you tune in next week where once again, we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.